Good morning. If you would please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. You can find that on page 595 in the blue Bibles in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, please take one of these Bibles home as our gift to you. Okay, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say... I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray. Us the ability to hear your word and to respond to it. Lord, you said to your disciples, without me, you can do nothing. And Lord, we recognize that uh, without you, we cannot have a hearing ear. Without you, we cannot have a discerning heart. uh, And we cannot understand the mysteries of your word. We cannot understand uh, the truth that is laid before us, even so plainly, Lord. And so, Lord, we, we recognize our need this morning. And we ask you to help us to hear and to help us to um, sit uh, reverently before your word and, and to allow it to challenge and change us. Lord, we pray for those who are in our midst who do not know you, Lord, that your word would convict and draw them so that they might know the living Christ, so that they might be saved and they might be made new. So, Lord, we thank you for all of this. God, I especially ask for your help. God, knowing Uh, better than anyone, my frailties, my weaknesses, uh, God, just my insecurities. And and so, Lord, I ask that you would just empower me to speak 
words that are far superior than any thought I could ever have. And so, Lord, I pray that, that I, would, I would skillfully and uh, accurately articulate what you're saying to your people today. And that can only happen by the inworking of your Holy Spirit. And so I thank you for this, Lord. And I just pray uh, for you to be present here with us and to bless the, the reading and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So uh, for those of you that are new uh, and maybe haven't been here for the last few weeks, we're in a series on the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. This is the uh, entire contents of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so we've come to the fourth of these seven letters. And this letter to a city, Thyatira, which would be found in modern-day Turkey, um, it's presented, I, I don't want you to miss this, you can read right over it, but this word is presented as the words of the Son of God. Now, this letter, that's very significant because this letter, at both the beginning and the end of the letter, um, points back in the Bible to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is a great prophetic psalm of the Messiah and uh, the, the coming one who would rule the nations. And it's interesting when you look at Psalm chapter 2 because it's one of the first places in the Bible that we get this concept that God's chosen king, his Messiah, w is revealed to be the very son of God. So it's significant that Jesus says that these are the words of the Son of God. Now, um, let's, in fact, if you would, just take a moment and, and go back in your Bible to Psalm chapter 2. And let's read a, a good portion of that together. So Psalm chapter 2, I'll give you a second or two to find that. And this is what we find in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. There's another reference to the son there. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this message is pointing to a, a king who would be the son of God, who would, who would be the one appointed by God to rule. And so he's chosen by God to rule, and he is owed, clearly from this passage, he's owed the reverence of the nations. And it, this, this psalm, as you just saw, takes a very serious turn. Sure judgment, the outpouring of holy wrath, is coming to everyone who treats this king's son with contempt. But those who take refuge in his salvation find eternal blessing and peace with God. 
And there, there's this, this idea, that idea of kissing the sun. It, it's, a, it's not a kiss of affection. It's a kiss of reverence. It's, it's, it's like, you know, uh, uh, when people kiss the Pope's ring or something. I hate to make that comparison, of course, but, but it, it, it's a kiss of reverence. And so in, in, this, uh, in this passage that we read in Revelation that Landy read to us, the sun is described as having eyes like a flame of fire. And perfect knowledge, as we've seen over and over again in these letters, perfect knowledge of his church comes from constant observation. Jesus sees, Jesus knows. We've seen that over and over again. And in this case, the picture that's being painted for us is that his fiery vision illuminates every secret corner of life in Thyatira. Every secret corner of the church's life there. Now, This is a double-edged sword. To the elect, to those whom Christ has chosen to belong to Christ, this observation is an assurance of intimacy. It's an assurance. It's a reminder of God's tender care. When I was growing up, we used to sing a song. Some of you have heard it. We would sing this song, His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And the idea presented by that old song was how can I fear if I know that the one who loves me the best is always watching me. But to the evil and the rebellious, this, this idea of the piercing gaze of Jesus Christ has a whole other dimension. It's a reminder that for them, no matter their arrogance, no matter their pride, there is absolutely no place for them to hide. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, of him to whom we must give account. Jesus sees everything. Moving on, this verse tells us in the description of the sun, it says, his feet are like burnished bronze. Now, if you're like me, you read that, it doesn't have a lot of significance for you. I mean, obviously it sounds glorious, it sounds majestic, but what does that mean? Well, Thyatira was known around the ancient world for its quality metal work. It had these foundries and they would produce these great things. And so uh, in, in, in Thyatira, bronze was considered a very, very, very valuable commodity. So in the Bible, um, and you see this over and over again, um, R.C. Sproul actually does a great teaching on this in Isaiah chapter 6. But in the Bible, feet are considered base or creaturely. They're, 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 they're not, you know, significant. They, 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 they represent our, our humanness, our fallenness. But, but notice this. When Jesus describes his feet as burnished bronze, something that the Thyatirans would greatly value, he's displaying his holiness. And he's saying that even his feet are more precious than Thyatira's best treasures. That's awesome to me. I love that. But there's more to it than that. He's also describing the strength and power of his reign. He's saying that that his feet are burnished bronze. There's strength, there's glory, there's majesty. And those are the feet under which the world will be placed on the day of his glory. Most of you have heard Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
And so he's describing the, the power with which he's coming into the situations in Thyatira. The, the letter to the church at Thyatira, interestingly, has both similarity and dissimilarity to the first letter that we read, the letter to the Ephesians in Ephesus. In both letters, Christ begins the exact same way. He says, I know your works. Both churches in both cases, are praised by Jesus for their patient endurance under trials and persecutions, heavy trials, heavy persecutions. But these churches, with that similarity, are also the polar opposites of one another. Let me explain. Along with patient endurance, Thyatira is also commended for its love and its faith and its service. Now, Ephesus, if you remember, the reason that's significant that Thyatira is praised for its love, faith, and service is because what was, was Ephesus rebuked for? They were rebuked because they had abandoned the love that they had at first, and they were told to remember that love and to return to it. But on the other hand, on the flip side of this coin, Christ recognized uh, uh, that Thyatira's latter works were were better than their first. So they weren't like Ephesus, uh, you know, kind of retreating from their best days. They were actually progressing. They were becoming more discipled uh, uh, and, and getting better and better. Now, on the positive side of this equation, Ephesus was commended for this reason. It said, you can't, Jesus told them, you can't bear with those who are evil and you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Jesus commended Ephesus because they had a zero tolerance policy towards false teaching. Now, watch this. Contrast Thyatira. When Jesus gets to the rebuke portion of this letter, this is what he says. Thyatira, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now watch. Whereas Ephesus had a zero tolerance policy, we come over to Thyatira and we find that they ignore false teachers among them and worse, they're allowing their poison, their venom to spread throughout the congregation. And so Christ, when he's looking at the situation in Thyatira, he compares a woman there to a villainous woman of the Old Testament. Most of you know the name. Several hundred years before, Jezebel was the daughter of the Sidonian king. And in an effort to consolidate power, King Ahab of Israel took uh, uh, Jezebel as a wife, even though it was forbidden by God for his people to marry the daughters of foreign pagans that, uh, and the Gentiles that surrounded their nation. Now, as queen, this had serious ramifications because Queen Jezebel persecuted and killed the prophets of the Lord. She promoted Baal worship in Israel, establishing and protecting Baal's priests. And she even had an innocent man named Naboth killed just so she could steal his ancestral vineyard as a gift to King Ahab. She was a terrible, terrible person. Jezebel is not a compliment. Never name your daughters Jezebel. Thyatira's Jezebel called herself a prophet. So what's these similarities? She called herself a prophetess. 
And so what she was doing is she was taking a, a role of authority over the people of God with absolutely no authorization from God to do so. God had never called her to be a prophet. She called herself a prophet. She calls herself a prophet. And so how is this similar? Queen Jezebel also ruled over God's people unlawfully. And she did so oppressively. And she did so seductively. Thyatira's Jezebel influenced the church to act like unbelievers in regard to idolatry and sexual immorality. The Old Testament Jezebel had led the people of Israel astray into spiritual adultery by worshiping Baal and not uh, Yahweh. So the sin within the church, this is the, I want you to not miss this point. The sin of the church of Thyatira was that they tolerated this. In, in some ways, they, there were some in the church that were turning a blind eye to this happening within their fellowship. It wasn't hidden. I guarantee you, when Jesus has this letter written to their church and he mentions that woman Jezebel, everyone knew exactly who he was referring to. Like, oh, Jezebel. They knew it. Many in the church knew what was happening with this false prophetess, but they said and did nothing at all. Now, I want to ask you the question. When we read this 2,000 years later, her problems seem pretty significant. If there was somebody here, some, some person in our congregation who was influencing a, a, a segment of you to worship idols and to commit sexual immorality in the worship of those idols and I said nothing some of you might have a problem with it I would hope that a hundred percent of you would have a problem with it but I would believe anything these days so nobody was doing anything how could this possibly be and I thought about this turn this question over in my mind because they're a good church Jesus says you have love you have faith you have service you have patient endurance great church and it occurred to me from 30 years of church experience it occurred to me it came on like a light bulb I know exactly what happened the answer for how things got so screwed up lay right in the middle of what they were commended for. What do you mean? Well, I'm talking about their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance. Have you ever noticed in yourself or others, because, you know, it's harder to notice things in ourselves. Have you ever noticed that in yourself or others that our greatest weaknesses often rest in the epicenter of our greatest strengths. Anybody testify and say amen to that? Two or three of you, I'll take it. <laughs> so what if, now just, just go with me on this, what if Thyatira's idea of love kept them from wanting to hurt Jezebel's feelings? What if their version of faith Convince them, oh, it's going to get better. She's not really that bad. What if they thought they were serving her by extending fellowship to her? What if they patiently endured her radical heresies because separating from her seems so uncaring and so unloving? But what I want you to understand 
not just 2,000 years ago, but in the church today, in our context, real love tells people the truth. Real love does not play along with other people's delusions about the gospel. Real faith expresses confidence in God's prescriptions for dealing with heresy in his church. Real service would have been to abandon their fear of being the bad guy and requiring that she repent. Patient endurance would have looked like trusting God to build his church even if they had to lose her. Many in churches today, you know it, make similar mistakes. God's people, too often, I could fill the rest of my time this morning with horror stories, true horror stories. But God's people at times have been absolutely silent in the face of open, unrepentant sin in the church. For one reason, a couple of reasons. They're afraid to rock the boat. They don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. And so instead, they choose to offend God. Ignoring what God has said by embracing what he rejects is the antithesis of love. It's the antithesis of faith. It's the antithesis of service. It's the antithesis of patient endurance. We love by pointing people to Jesus. And we do so in faith that he is building his church. We serve others by giving them the truth of the gospel alone, never allowing it to be replaced or watered down. Galatians 1.6, Paul had planted a church in the region of Galatia and they had been seduced just like what Jezebel was doing to go far away from the gospel. And he says this to his church that he loves so much. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Pay attention, not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort distort the gospel of Christ. These are the Jezebels that want to, to twist and seduce you away from the truth of the gospel to something far inferior. So patient endurance happens when we keep the true gospel before all people, whether or, not, whether or not it meets with popular acceptance, we don't even care about that. Whether or not it makes people mad with its demands, whether or not um, it causes, because of the demands, because of the, the unpopularity of it, it causes the church to lose attendance, the least of our worries. So what exactly, how did all this work, this idolatry and sexual immorality? What was happening in Thyatira? Well, I mentioned earlier that the city was a hub of metal work. It was also a place of high quality textiles where they were produced and could be purchased. These industries were represented by powerful trade guilds. Now, in order to make a living in the city, in these industries, you had to be a member of these guilds. You had to be part of them. And this is where the problems began. Because remember, 
However, being in pagan Rome, these guilds all had a religious, a pagan religious nature to them. They, and they would require their members to be members in good standing. They would require them to engage in pagan rituals in order to invoke the blessings of the God, they, gods they were trying to persuade to bless their industry. And so these rituals would include, include animal sacrifices to the gods and feasts of those sacrificed animals. And, and there would be participation in things like ritual prostitution. All of this to stir their gods to bless them. And if you were in the guild, if you were a member of the guild, you could not refuse. Why? Because if, it, if you're a member of the guild and you say, I'm not going to invoke the blessing of, of our gods, then, then you are, are rejecting those patron gods of that industry and the industry might suffer. So if you're a part of the guild, you've got to play by the rules. So here comes Jezebel. And it is largely believed that she was teaching church people that it was okay to participate in these rituals. Now, church, let's be rational. Let's be reasonable. God understand that you had to make a living, right? I mean, come on. I, I mean, I want to be religious, but not radical. I mean, yeah, I mean, probably not the best thing, but, you know, everybody's doing it. So how could it hurt? See, what Jezebel's main sin was, probably, is that she's elevating the, the joy and the, and the necessity of making a buck over faithful allegiance to God. She's saying this is more important. And God knows you got to eat. So he's, you know, he's going to understand. Just participate. But what Jezebel didn't know or remember was the Bible says that God makes sure all the sparrows get their food every day. And then he said, you're of much more value than those sparrows. And so if he's going to take care of the sparrows, guess who else he's going to take care of? He's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of you. Like Pergamum's church, Jezebel had a licentious attitude towards grace and because of that, she grossly misinterpreted it. And no one in the church at Thyatira had the guts to stand up to her and correct her. But Thyatira's mills, Thyatira's foundries, weren't the source of provision and blessing for believers. The Lord was. See, her gods that she was saying it's okay to appease couldn't grant or couldn't withhold blessing because they were nothing more than carved wood and stone. That's it. And God was exposing Jezebel's lies and seductions and he was calling his people back to love, calling his people back to loyalty and, holy, and holiness and unpolluted worship before their God. He was saying, forget her, come back. And many will tell you, like Jezebel was saying, that it's okay to be religious, it's okay to identify with Christ, just don't be a weirdo. Don't be strange. Society operates by certain rules and surely God understands that. Surely. As God saying, oh, I don't want to get in the way of society. I almost said, God forbid. <laughs> a little compromise here, a little compromise there, it's not going to hurt. But what this letter to Thyatira is telling us, 
That is not genuine Christianity. Are you hearing me? That's not genuine Christianity. Christianity says, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You can't redefine the terms of Jesus's covenant with you and say, uh, Jesus, I'm going to need a little allowance here. I've, I've run this through my attorney and now he wants to make a deal with you to, to get better terms in my relationship with you. No, 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 no. Kiss the son lest he be angry and his wrath is poured out. Second Corinthians chapter six fourteen. Look that up for me. I want to show you this. Some of you are going to be blown away because of how you've interpreted this. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse fourteen. Look at this first verse. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now. Did he mention anything in that passage about marriage? Okay, so every time I've heard this verse in my life, it, it was telling young people not to marry unbelievers, which is a good policy. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that can't be implied from this verse. What I'm saying is that the verse isn't narrowed to marriage. It's expanded to everything. Are you hearing me? It's expanded to everything. The whole kit and caboodle is found and do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or the devil? What portion does the believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is all-encompassing. Biblical Christianity, I want you to get this, because some of us are not doing well here. Biblical Christianity envisions a people who are distinct from the world, altogether different, altogether different values, altogether different pursuits, completely different from the world. If you don't want to be a weirdo, you're in the wrong place. You have the wrong faith if you don't want to be a weirdo. Because Jesus said, more than being a weirdo, he said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. You want to know if your Christianity is genuine? Find out who hates you. And conversely, find out who loves you. And that will really help you define the genuineness of your Christianity. We are called to be distinct. We do not carry ourselves. When we say distinct, some of you are getting nervous. I'm not talking about in distinction, carrying ourselves with a hypocritical air of superiority. That's not what our distinction is for. It's not so we can be better than everybody else. The distinctiveness that Christ is calling us is to be a beacon of hope to those who are wasting away in the futility of their fallen natures. It's, it's to say, you know, when, when uh, the Bible tells us that we should be ready in season and out of season to give a reason for the hope that lies in, inside of us. Our distinction is when we let our hope shine so brightly that people says, I need to know what that's all about. And then we're ready to give an answer of why that hope is there. Let's go back to our, our main text, Revelation 2, 21. I gave her, Jesus speaking, time to re repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. By the way, let me pause for just a second. That word throw speaks of violence. It's not, he's not going to lay her gently in the sickbed. He's not going to, to lead his people into, into some serious tribulation. He is going to chuck them there. Speaking Texan, that's the Texan version of the Bible. But he's going to chuck them into, into sickness and, and tribulation. There is, some, there is some judgment that's happening here. And, and he says the, 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 uh, the qualification here is, in the verse 22, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. How serious is that? And all churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. There's those flaming eyes again. And I will give to each of you according to your works. So there's references here to sexual immorality and adultery. And those references are probably both literal. Literal, I mean, these people were probably being seduced and engaged in cult prostitution, all kinds of perverted uh, sex acts for the worship of their gods. But it's also metaphorical. And what I mean by that is in the Old Testament, abandoning abandoning God for idols is regularly compared to marital infidelity. Israel was God's wife and he constantly accused them of adultery and harlotry and all kinds of terrible things in their relationship with him. It amounts to spiritual adultery. And God had been patient with Jezebel. Aren't you glad that when we are so messed up that God is patient with us? And perhaps some leaders in the church, we don't know this, but perhaps some had attempted to discipline her, but it was to no avail. She refused to repent. She was absolutely committed, sold out to her evils. And so this teed her up for the Lord's discipline which she could not avoid. She would waste away with disease and her followers would experience great tribulation. Now, when God says he will strike her children dead, everyone kind of cringes on that for obvious good reasons. And, and there could actually be a literal uh, you know, thing that's happening there, but he's probably pointing to those who under the influence of Jezebel's ministry, in air quotes, under the influence of her ministry, seemed to have been born again. But in reality, we had only been attracted to the church, to the people of God, by her synthesis of false pagan promises with the true grace of God. And he, God is saying, he's going to expose them as false believers and as apostates before the watching church. Now listen, what is the reason for all this judgment? God tells us right here. All this is going to happen so that the church will have a more accurate picture of God's holiness. He is going to stand up to her when nobody in the church will, and he's going to demonstrate how holy he is. He's called, he says, this is so all the church will know that I am the one who searches mind and heart. You cannot hide for God, from God. Second or third time I've said that today. You can't hide. And more than that, he doesn't watch and ignore. It says he is going to give to each of you according to your works. So judgment, when it's poured out on individuals, on nations, on churches, judgment reminds us all of who God really is. That's the purpose of it. To shake us awake and go, oh, 
we have not been thinking of God rightly. This is who God is. So clearly, there were those in Thyatira who had remained faithful and who had rejected outright Jezebel's deceptions. And this message of judgment was not for them. Let's read Revelation uh, 2.24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do, you, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Jezebel's followers thought that they had discovered the deep things. They may have spoken with tongues of men and angels and felt that they had all knowledge and could understand all mysteries. But folks, it was all a sham. There is nothing, and this this is where I get really nervous when the church starts pursuing other things than the simple, pure gospel message. There is nothing deeper in all of life than the love of Christ for wayward, desperate sinners. You could think of nothing else for the rest of your life and daily have your mind blown. That's what, the, that's what makes the gospel so wonderful. It's a, it's a story, it's a concept I could tell to a child, and yet I still can't wrap my mind around it. And I love that. So the origin, Jesus says, of the other deep things wasn't the Holy Spirit. He even says they were the deep things of Satan. See, what had happened, the, Thyati- the Thyatirans had put lipstick on a sow and asked her to the prom. They were deceived by their lust for sex and reward. They thought they were pursuing and pleasing God. But listen to me, please. God will only be pleased and he must only be pursued in the ways that God prescribes. You can't make up the rules as you go along because God has already made up the rules. You can't alter them. You can't amend them. You can't change the context of them. And to the true believers in Thyatira, these rituals and these demands of foreign idols were meaningless. Jesus said that, hey, with me, I will lay no other burden on you. He said, come to me all that you labor and are heavy laden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's not going to lay anything else on them. This is what the requirement for the believers was. Let's read it. Romans 10, verse 9. You're probably all familiar with it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I got to say something. There's a little bit of an asterisk that I got to add in here. Because some of us read that and we think, okay, believe in my heart. Mm, Jesus is Lord. Confess with my mouth. Hey, uh, hey, Jesus is Lord. I got to tell you this. And, and what I want you to understand that, the, that what the Bible is telling you is a lot bigger than that. Not more works-based, not adding another burden to you, but here's what it means. Confession means this. It means an unashamed public declaration of Jesus Christ's lordship. That's what it means. That's what confession is biblically. Confession isn't the silent whisper of your heart locked away in your prayer closet where no one can see you. Uh, Confession is the loud, public, uh, unashamed, unquestioned decision that Jesus is Lord. You can't confess God's lordship. This is why this is important for the Thyatirans. You can't confess Christ's lordship while you're engaged in pagan sex rituals and wiping the sacrifice that was slaughtered for your idols from your lips. 
That is not confessing the lordship of Christ. The lordship of Christ is confessed by fire tyrants saying, no, I'm not participating. And believing in Christ doesn't mean that you simply acknowledge his existence. I ask people all the time, do you believe in God? Oh yeah, I believe in God. And then when they describe the God they believe in, I'm saying, I don't recognize that guy. It doesn't mean to simply acknowledge his existence, but that you believe what he says is true. And furthermore, that you demonstrate that belief by obeying his commands and trusting in the power of his grace to save. So Christ's only demand of Thyatira was that they hold fast to what they have. Go back to the beginning of the letter. What do they have? Love, faith, service, patient endurance. And most of all, high above all those other qualities, they had Jesus himself, unpolluted by idols and sex, sex rituals. They had Jesus himself. Hold fast to what you have. They have to treasure Jesus first and let him alone define what is valuable and important. They have to strengthen their grip on these qualities and these realities. And Jesus would preserve them. Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now you might recall from Psalms 2, which we read earlier, that it mentioned that the the Messiah would be giving an iron rod to rule the nations and they would be as pottery before him, broken in judgment. But in Psalm 2, what I want you to notice, we just read about in Revelation 2, we read about, you know, rods of iron and, and nations as pottery. But in Psalm 2, ruling and breaking are all assigned to the Messiah alone. You catch that? But here, Christ is granting his faithful ones the same rod to rule over the same brittle earthen nations. And he said, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now this is an often overlooked element in our view of the last things some of you, most of you have an imagination of heaven and the new Jerusalem. And, and there's going to be a lot of things that are factors in that. All of them true. Unending worship, unending fellowship, reuniting with, with relatives and saints from the past. All that's true. But what, what this verse is screaming at us, telling us, loudly proclaiming to us, that it's also going to be a time of ruling with Christ. I don't even know what that looks like. But... Revelation 19 envisions the church, which is called there the armies of heaven, returning with Christ to both judge and to rule the nations under his authority. And because we are in Christ, the Lord of all, we will most certainly rule with Christ. That's his promise to those who remain faithful. But there's another precious promise to those who overcome in this passage. He says, I will give him the morning star. What is this saying? 
So last week in our passage uh, in the church to Pergamum, we talked about this, this Moabite seer from the Old Testament named Balaam. And Balaam uh, was the guy that God forced to speak a blessing over the, the nation of Israel while a curse was still in his mouth. While he wanted to curse them, God made him bless them. And looking far into their future, far down the line, Balaam prophesied. And look what he refers to. Watch, this, this is so cool. Well, all the way back in your Bible, in Numbers twenty four seventeen, it says, this is Balaam prophesying in, a, in a, a prophecy, a blessing that God has forced into his mouth. He says, I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the the sons of Sheth. So watch this. I will grant those, I will give those the morning star. Jesus is the star that arises from Jacob's people, the Jews, And he bears the scepter, the rod of iron, to crush the heads of his enemies. And in granting to them the morning star, Christ is saying to those faithful people in Thyatira, I will give you all of myself to enjoy. Wow, what a great, great promise. So in summary, Jezebel thought that true blessing could only be gained by compromising in this present life. But Christ proclaimed that true blessing is only guaranteed as we remain unfaithful and unwavering to him and as we await the next and better life. That's the idea. This is not, if you're in life right now trying to grab all you can and get all you can and, and um, uh, make whatever compromise you can to get ahead, let me strongly encourage you to return to Christ, repent of your works, come to Jesus, make him uh, Lord of all, not only by your declaration, but by your actions. Make him Lord of all. Don't engage in compromises that weaken your testimony of hope before a watching world. Stand strong for Jesus. Stand strong for Jesus. Cast Jezebel out of your house, out of your workplace, out of this church. Get rid of her. She is only going to cause you to be destroyed in the last day. And so um, come back to Jesus. Make Jesus everything. So we're going to gather now at the table. And so what I want you to do, we're going to do this a little bit differently. We're going to kind of uh, do something we've done in the past, but we didn't do last week. So if you would, um, I think, do we have some servers, Justin? Okay. So if you guys would come on up, um, we're going to uh, uh, ask you to come and receive the elements uh, from these folks. And then um, we will uh, ask you to go back to your seat and we'll take them together. Okay. So uh, as soon as they get up here and get ready, you are welcome to come. So under Jezebel's influence, the people, some people in the church of Thyatira would gather at their pagan guilds, their community, and they would slaughter an animal to some pagan deity, some false god, and then have a feast um, to appease their gods, to invoke their blessing. It's interesting because Christ 
is from within our community, the church. He's called us to a sacrifice, but we didn't sacrifice this. He was sacrificed for us. He was given for us. He, was, he laid down his life freely. He said, no man takes my life from me. I, I lay it down on myself. And, and every time we gather, he's calling us to a feast where we say, where we look at, at this and we say, okay, this is our reminder of, of what Christ has done for us and, and of our covenant with him. Our, our promise. It is our testimony of our faith being only in Christ and in no other. And so it is my great joy to, to share this meal with you. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink this cup, or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. And now I just want to ask you in your own words to just renew the covenant with Jesus. Maybe there's sin that, that needs to be repented of. Maybe there's, there's great joys and great blessings you need to be thankful for. But just, just take some time and, and thank God uh, for what he has provided for you through his blood. The, the blood that gives you the forgiveness of sins, the blood that gives you um, all the joys and blessings that you that you are are uh, uh, given, and and the the blood that enables you to serve Him and please Him and 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 bring glory to Him. So just take a moment, just just pray out loud and out, and just tell God what you're what uh, you want Him to know and thank Him for for the gift of His His blood on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your atonement. Thank you how you satisfied the wrath of God. God, I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to be faithful to you, Lord, and to be unwavering to you, Lord God, to, to um, God, seek the things that are above and not the things of the earth, Lord. God, I pray that you would just help us to, um, in our gratitude for your sacrifice, to go and share the gospel everywhere, Lord, at work, at home, at school, Lord, wherever we find ourselves in our neighborhoods, in our recreation, Lord, to share your gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be aware of our, our sin, our weakness, our blind spots. And Lord, bring them to you for your forgiveness and correction and to be able to uh, walk in greater holiness, greater, greater truth, Lord. We thank you for that. So Lord, I thank you for your mercy towards us. Thank you for the reminder of your mercy in this supper. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, extend your hands in a receiving position, and I want to read a benediction over you as I dismiss you. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. You're dismissed.